1: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode 169 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, we closed the last show with Henry Halleck's August 3rd telegram to George McClellan, officially informing Little Mac that he was to withdraw his army from the Peninsula. And so the Peninsula Campaign and the Seven Days Battles came to an end.
1: From the arrival of the first elements of McClellan's army at Fort Monroe on March 20th to that army's final evacuation on August 26th, the campaign lasted 160 days, or five months and one week. For Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, it ended with victory and Richmond delivered. For George B. McClellan and the Army of the Potomac, it ended with defeat and humiliating retreat. During the 160 days of the campaign, some 250,000 men participated in it, on land and at sea, more than any other single campaign of the Civil War. In pitched battles and smaller skirmishes, from Yorktown to Malvern Hill, some 25,370 Federals and 30,450 Confederates were killed, wounded, or missing. Of that total of 55,820 for the two armies, at least 8,670 died in battle. Perhaps another 5,000 died of disease, raising the death toll to an estimated 13,670. And even that total is almost certainly too low, since statistics on disease on the peninsula were incomplete, and then many soldiers reported missing were surely dead. At any rate, when all was said and done, better than 24 percent, almost one in four, of the quarter million men who took part in the peninsula campaign were counted wounded or missing or dead of battle or disease.
0: In his book, To the Gates of Richmond, Stephen Sears writes that, quote, On the peninsula in these months, more even than these men had been lost. General McClellan's grand campaign had always carried within it the dream of ending the civil war while it was still a rebellion and before it became a revolution. He envisioned the fighting at Richmond as his American Waterloo, so that afterward the contestants might sit down together at the peace table in the manner of wars past. There, statesmen would offer certain adjustments and make certain concessions, and the Union would be restored in peace and goodwill.
1: Sears continues, writing, quote, But that dream died in smoke and fire in the swamps at Gaines's mill and in the deep woods at Glendale and on Malvern Hill's bloody slopes. No statesman would meet in the wake of the seven days to write an end to the sad war and heal the breach between North and South. The war would go on for three more years and from a rebellion become a revolution.
0: As you could probably tell from that lead segment, the Seven Days Battles had powerful repercussions. In fact, we don't think it's going too far to say that the Peninsula Campaign exerted enormous influence on the course of the Civil War. In the short term, its consequences reverberated not only through the two armies that had maneuvered and fought up Virginia's Peninsula to the gates of Richmond, but the campaign's outcome also affected the morale and expectations of untold thousands of northern and southern civilians who had followed the story of the campaign as it unfolded.
1: In the broader sweep of the war, George B. McClellan's failure and Robert E. Lee's emergence as a a successful field commander marked a pivotal moment in the conflict's eastern theater, one that, in turn, shaped the larger direction of the Civil War. A seemingly irresistible tide of Union military successes between February and June 1862 receded rapidly after the Seven Days Battles. This dramatic reversal of Federal military fortunes canceled earlier predictions of a Northern victory that might have restored the Union much as it had existed on the eve of the war. Because their premier field army had been humbled at the gates of Richmond by the Confederates, Northerners had to confront the prospect of pursuing a harsher kind of war in order to defeat the rebels. That kind of war would likely bring about the end of slavery and an upending of Southern society.
0: In the wake of the Seven Days Battles, Confederates, meanwhile, took heart at what they perceived as the much-improved chances of the survival of their southern slaveholding republic. And with regard to that perception, an important point about the military situation in the summer of 1862 bears mention. And that point is that military operations in the war's eastern theater almost certainly carried more weight than those taking place elsewhere.
1: That's not to say that everyone looked to the East as the theater of decision. That surely wasn't the case. But the majority of civilians, North and South, as well as members of the U.S. Congress, not to mention political leaders in London and Paris, formed their primary impressions about how the war was going by reading accounts of the campaigns and battles in the East. And really, several factors explain this. The centers of population clustered in the East, as did newspapers with the highest circulations. The largest and most prominent armies, commanded by the most celebrated generals, fought in the East, and they maneuvered and fought in the shadow of the respective national capitals. Some observers at the time, including Abraham Lincoln, lamented what they considered an undue focus on events in the war's eastern theater, uh, as have a number of modern Civil War historians. But the fact remains that what happened during the Peninsula Campaign and the Seven Days Battles would exert all the more influence because of where it occurred.
0: The results of the fighting near Richmond would administer a major jolt to the northern political scene, As the first year of the war came to a close and the second began, the northern political scene featured cautious optimism about chances for victory, but there was also debate and differences of opinion concerning war aims.
1: The Republican Party made progress on its legislative agenda, passing the Homestead Act on May 20, 1862, and preparing to enact Senator Justin Morrill's land-grant college legislation, as well as a transcontinental railroad bill, and also an internal revenue bill, all three of which would become law in the first week of July. And so the Republican vision of moving the United States toward the late 19th century as an industrial and agricultural giant driven by free labor seemed to be on track.
0: But the northern public and Congress divided bitterly over emancipation and the question of what kind of union they sought to restore. Most Democrats vigorously insisted they would risk lives and treasure to save the union, but not to free enslaved black people. Democrats abhorred the notion of upending the South's social system by destroying slavery. Virtually all Democrats early on in the Civil War supported the restoration of the Union as a war aim, but at the same time almost all Democrats seconded George McClellan's unwavering opposition to adding emancipation as a war aim.
1: The Republican majority in Congress overcame Democratic opposition, and legislation was passed prohibiting the use of military power to return fugitive slaves to rebel owners on March 13th, Abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia on April 16th and prohibiting slavery in all federal territories on June 19th. Meanwhile, though, black and white abolitionists, radical Republicans, and some moderate Republicans supported more sweeping legislation. And Abraham Lincoln, who wanted to control the issue himself, considered calling for emancipation as a measure necessary to defeat the rebels. McClellan's campaign to capture Richmond served as a major wild card in this debate over emancipation and war aims. A federal victory and the capture of the Confederate capital in the summer of 1862, coming on the heels of so many other Union successes elsewhere earlier in the year, might mean an end to the war, and in turn an end to the war in 1862 would would have likely come before the North decided to insist on emancipation as a precondition to restoration of the Union.
0: Therefore, as James McPherson and other historians have pointed out, it's ironic that Robert E. Lee's victory outside Richmond guaranteed that the war would go on and would take on a whole new shape. After McClellan's failure before Richmond, gone were the days of conciliation and the belief of treating the South with kid gloves in order to foster a harmonious reunion.
1: We'll once again recommend you pick up Glenn David Brasher's book, The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation, if you'd like to explore this topic in more detail but we'll point out that the second confiscation act was passed within days of the end of the peninsula campaign, ushering in harsher treatment of southern property, particularly slaves. And a little more than two months after the army of the Potomac retreated from Malvern Hill, Abraham Lincoln issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, dramatically altering the complexion of the war and raising the stakes of the conflict. All of that's to say that the restored nation that emerged from the Civil War in 1865 was much, much different than the nation that likely would have emerged if McClellan's Army of the Potomac had defeated Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and captured Richmond in July of 1862.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone.
3: My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for long-time students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War.
0: The northern public expected success from the Army of the Potomac as summer approached in 1862. This expectation stemmed from the many Union victories on battlefields from New Mexico to the Atlantic coast, and the cumulative effect of those victories in the first part of the year prompted Northern newspapers to indulge in grandly optimistic predictions about McClellan's chances for a decisive victory. As early as March twelfth, the New York Times assured its readers that the, quote, final blow may now be struck which shall annihilate the rebel army as an organized force and crush the government of the rebel confederacy at its capital
1: at the same time public opinion in the confederacy contrasted sharply with that in the north every union military success early in 1862 meant a corresponding southern failure and this string of defeats fostered and almost frantic need in the South for victories to raise civilian morale. Increasing food shortages, great stretches of territory lost to the Yankee invaders, and stringent government actions added to the gloomy situation. By far the most important and most divisive action by the Confederate government at this time was the Conscription Act. This legislation, passed on April 16, 1862, was the first comprehensive draft in American history. It sought to keep Confederate ranks filled at a time when enlistments had dwindled and thousands of 12-month volunteers neared the end of their terms of service. This move by the national government in Richmond infuriated many states' rights advocates who denounced what they saw as a grotesque perversion of the ideals that stirred secessionists in the first place. In other words, since they'd loudly proclaimed back in 1860 and sixty one that Washington couldn't tell them what to do, that meant that logically, now in 1862, Richmond had no more right to boss them around. Well, Such was the Confederacy's quandary, and it only grew worse as the war progressed.
0: But the fact that Confederate armies had been losing ground on every front was causing more damage to Southern morale than was the discontent over conscription. The Confederate populace yearned for battlefield victories, especially offensive ones delivered by aggressive generals who went after the enemy rather rather than merely countering federal movements.
1: The absence of an army commander around whom the Confederate people could rally only deepened this crisis. The first year of the war had seen four officers rise above their peers, P.G.T. Beauregard, Joseph E. Johnston, Albert Sidney Johnston, and Robert E. Lee. By the time of the seven days, Sidney Johnston had died at Shiloh, Beauregard had fallen afoul of Jefferson Davis and been exiled to the Western Theater, and in Virginia, Joe Johnston had retreated so often that many had come to question his abilities before he suffered a disabling set of wounds at Seven Pines. And Robert E. Lee stepped into Johnston's position with his public image much diminished after a failed campaign in western Virginia and a stint of unappreciated service along the South Atlantic coast. And so, as we said previously on the podcast, Lacking a superstar general commanding a victorious major army on whom they could pin their hopes, Confederate civilians made Stonewall Jackson their principal military idol. Stonewall, of course, had seized headlines with his campaign out in the Shenandoah Valley and his victories in five small battles there.
0: But Robert E. Lee, rather than Stonewall Jackson, would be tapped to coordinate the defense of Richmond in June, after Joe Johnston was knocked out of action. And as we said before, when Lee assumed his new duties, many civilians and soldiers who hungered for aggressive action doubted that Lee was up to the task.
1: Well, anyways, these brief summaries of events and opinion during the first half of 1862 indicate how much was at stake as the armies on the peninsula moved toward their climactic battles outside Richmond. Flushed with recent military successes, the North confidently expected McClellan to deliver a crowning triumph that would crush the rebellion. How such a victory would influence the debate over emancipation remained to be seen. Meanwhile, Confederates struggled to maintain hope in the midst of increasing economic hardship, turmoil over the draft, a relentless drumbeat of failure on the battlefield, and the absence of a major army commander in whom they could invest their hopes.
0: The seven days' battles dramatically altered the military and non-military elements of that picture. If we start with the Army of the Potomac, George B. McClellan's reputation suffered, as Rich said last week, among those officers and men in the army who believed he'd retreated unnecessarily and fumbled away a brilliant opportunity to capture the enemy's capital. But far more numerous were soldiers whose disappointment at not taking Richmond failed to undermine their confidence in McClellan. Many federal soldiers believed it was their government that was behind Little Mac's failure, having failed to provide the men and material their George needed for victory.
1: McClellan's failure before Richmond exacerbated the already poisonous distrust between democratic generals in the army of the Potomac and republicans in Washington. Radical republican senator Zachariah Chandler of Michigan, a member of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, attacked McClellan relentlessly in the committee and on the floor of the Senate. In private, Chandler called McClellan, quote, "an imbecile if not a traitor." End quote. And in Lincoln's cabinet, Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton flayed McClellan for his timid response to Lee's offensive and lambasted him for his chronic pleas for more men and supplies. Three weeks after the Battle of Malvern Hill, Chase, quote, urged upon the president the importance of an immediate change in command of the Army of the Potomac. I said that I did not regard General McClellan as loyal to the administration, although I did not question his general loyalty to the country.
0: Lincoln himself visited the Army at Harrison's Landing on July eighth and ninth. What the President experienced there at McClellan's headquarters didn't encourage him. As Rich said last week, Little Mac had prepared a confidential letter for Lincoln dated July 7th and later known as the Harrison's Landing Letter, which called for the continuance of a restrained form of warfare against the Confederacy.
1: In the Harrison's Landing Letter, McClellan insisted, quote, Neither confiscation of property or forcible abolition of slavery should be contemplated for the moment, end quote. Lincoln historian David Donald has aptly described the president's reaction to Little Mac's suggestion, writing, quote, That policy had been pursued for over a year, and Lincoln was convinced that it had failed. He was ready to move on. End quote.
0: And so Lincoln moved much closer to the abolitionist and radical Republicans who had demanded seizure of slaves and other property belonging to the rebels. Later in July, deeply affected by the failure of the Peninsula Campaign, Lincoln would inform his cabinet that he intended to issue a proclamation of emancipation.
1: Congress, meanwhile, put the finishing touches on the Second Confiscation Act, which was a measure designed to free all slaves held by rebels. Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts explicitly tied passage of this act on July 17th to Union military failure at the gates of Richmond. He said, quote, The bill of confiscation and liberation, which was at last passed, under pressure from our reverses at Richmond, is a practical act of emancipation. End quote.
0: Most Northern civilians understood that McClellan's campaign had failed, though few believed it signified Confederate independence. The campaign's failure hit especially hard because hopes had been so high. Overall, the North began to confront the unpleasant fact that enormous sacrifice and loss would likely be necessary to put down the rebellion.
1: Actually, politics colored reaction to the Peninsula campaign among many northern civilians. Democratic-controlled newspapers tended to blame the Lincoln administration and Congress rather than McClellan stressing that the army should have been reinforced before the final series of battles near Richmond. And then in the realm of foreign affairs, the campaign carried far more clout with French and British observers than any of the Union's successes in the war's western theater. In Britain, McClellan's failure helped fuel support for recognizing the Confederacy during heated debates in Parliament. Abraham Lincoln vented his frustration at the importance given to events in Virginia compared to those farther west, when, in a letter to a French diplomat in August, the President said, quote, "...it seems unreasonable that a series of successes extending through half a year and clearing more than a 100,000 square miles of country should help us so little, while a single half-defeat should hurt us so much."
0: What Abraham Lincoln tried to downplay as a half-defeat for the Union had a seismic effect on the Confederacy's war for survival. As we've already pointed out in this episode, Robert E. Lee's successful debut as field commander marked arguably one of the crucial turning points of the war.
1: As Gary Gallagher has pointed out, Lee's leadership in June and July of 1862, while marred by tactical lapses, nevertheless began an 11-month process by which he would mold the Army of Northern Virginia into a finely-tuned instrument, a finely-tuned instrument that a. won notable victories, b. rapidly became the most important national institution in the Confederacy, and c. helped sustain morale in the face of mounting odds and hardship on the Southern Helm front.
0: In the book of essays on the Peninsula Campaign and the Seven Days that he edited, Gallagher points out how, starting in the summer of 1862, Robert E. Lee rose to become the principal military idol of the Confederacy. Beginning with the Seven Days, Lee and his army would shoulder an increasing share of the burden of sustaining morale among the Confederacy's populace.
1: During the Seven Days' Battles, Robert E. Lee through his audacity and aggressiveness, pursued the kind of strategic and tactical offensive that was best suited to satisfy the expectations of the Confederate people. Lee's conduct during the seven days produced confidence, and won him praises from many who had previously groused about his timid style of generalship. The Richmond dispatch had been among those doubtful of Lee's abilities. But reversed course quickly after the seven days. On July 9th, the dispatch reported, quote, The rise which this officer has suddenly taken in the public confidence is without precedent.
0: For Lee himself, though, the campaign proved both frustrating and educational. The Confederate commander believed that the enemy army could have been destroyed had things gone better. Lee admitted to his wife, quote, our success has not been so great or complete as we could have desired, End quote. And in his official report on the campaign, Lee said, quote, Under ordinary circumstances, the Federal Army should have been destroyed.
1: So what had kept the Federal Army from being destroyed? Well, as you guys will recall, at one point during the seven days, when someone suggested that it looked as if McClellan would slip away, Lee's frustration had risen to the surface, and he'd snapped, Yes, he will get away, because I cannot have my orders carried out. Well, Lee himself had made a great many mistakes during the seven days, even if he never publicly admitted any of them, but his actions in the immediate aftermath of the campaign indicate that he must have felt that his subordinates were responsible for much of the failure to destroy McClellan's army. Lee took several steps to remedy defects in his command structure revealed by the campaign. Because Stonewall Jackson's divisions, and several other brigades, had joined Lee's force only on the eve of the Seven Days, the Army of Northern Virginia had never fought as a unit, and Lee hadn't time to forge the chain of command into an extension of his will. To do so now, he shuffled aside several officers— exiled others to the war's western theater, and promoted abler subordinates to their places.
0: Within just a few days after the campaign, three of Lee's principal commanders were no longer with the army. Magruder left for the West. He only remained in Richmond long enough to defend himself from fellow officers' erroneous charges of dereliction of duty at Malvern Hill. Prince John hadn't been pleased with his experience serving under Joe Johnston or Lee, and telling Lee Lee didn't try to persuade Magruder to
1: stay. Theophilus Holmes was trundled off unceremoniously to the west as well, and Benjamin Uge was removed from field command and named inspector of artillery and ordnance. Because the problem of communicating directly with eight or nine division commanders had proven unworkable during the seven days, Lee reorganized the army into two corps, although they weren't officially designated as such until later. James Longstreet emerged from the campaign as the general in whom Lee felt he could most rely, so Lee shifted brigades around and expanded Longstreet's command to include 28 brigades. Conversely, Lee never publicly, or even privately as far as we know, criticized or rebuked Stonewall Jackson for his dismal performance during the seven days, but Lee did reduce the number of brigades in Jackson's command from 14 to 7. In any case, Stonewall Jackson quickly recovered from whatever had been affecting him during the campaign, and he went on to justify the confidence expressed by Lee's giving him corps command.
0: So as we look ahead to Second Manassas, the cast of characters on the Confederate side has come into clearer focus. There's Lee, Longstreet, and Jackson. But what of the major players on the Union side? Well, we've already mentioned that just a few days after returning to Washington after his trip to Harrison's Landing, Abraham Lincoln appointed Henry Halleck General-in-Chief, which was a move David Donald wrote that, quote, signaled a repudiation of McClellan and of McClellan's view of the war.
1: Firing McClellan outright would be politically risky, so instead of removing Little Mac from command, Lincoln and Halleck seem to have decided that the withdrawal of the Army of the Potomac from the peninsula was an excellent opportunity to take away the army gradually from McClellan. You see, even back before the beginning of the Seven Days Battles, Lincoln had decided that the various Union forces operating in Northern Virginia, while Little Mac was marching on Richmond, needed to be under a single commander, and for that commander, Lincoln looked to the West, where Union forces had scored one victory after another. The man he chose was John Pope, lately commander of the Army of the Mississippi under Halleck. Pope had snapped up Island Number Ten along the Mississippi River and then had participated in Halleck's hesitant advance from Pittsburgh Landing to Corinth.
0: Pope came east and took over his new command on June twenty seventh, even as the Battle of Gaines Mill was raging down outside Richmond. Christened the Army of Virginia, it consisted of Urban McDowell's Corps, which would never join McClellan on the peninsula, as well as Nathaniel Banks' hard luck command from the Shenandoah Valley, and a third force containing a relatively high proportion of German-American regiments and commanded by none other than Franz Siegel, who had turned in a mediocre performance at Wilson's Creek out of Missouri the preceding summer.
1: Altogether, Pope's new army had 51,000 men in its ranks and with the withdrawal of the Army of the Potomac from the peninsula, Lincoln and Halleck now had the option of transferring one unit at a time out from under Little Mac to Pope's command in northern Virginia. We'll talk more about John Pope and the ruckus he caused in Virginia upon assuming command, but for now, as we look ahead to the Battle of Second Manassas, our cast of characters is pretty much set. For the Confederates, there's Robert E. Lee, James Longstreet, and Stonewall Jackson. And for the Federals, there's Lincoln, Henry Halleck, John Pope, and a very unhappy George B. McClellan.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is, Struggle for a Vast Future, The American Civil War edited by Aaron Sheehan-Dean.
1: This book is really a collection of 12 essays by 12 historians, and in these essays they discuss the origins, events, and legacy of the Civil War, looking at key themes of the conflict, uh, both on and off the battlefields and on the home fronts. Uh, The title of the book, Struggle for a Vast Future, is taken from Abraham Lincoln's First annual message to Congress in December 1861, when he said, The struggle of today is not altogether for today, it is for a vast future also. With reliance on providence, all the more firm and earnest, let us proceed in the great task which events have devolved upon us.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: As we wrap up this show, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Casey, Eugene, and David. Thanks, guys.
0: And we also want to say thank you to Chet H. in Canada for his donation this past week. We actually heard from a couple of Canadian fans of the podcast this past week, so that was nice.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.